chapter 5, verses 7 through 15. If you're following along in your pew Bibles, that can be found on page 1036. Galatians 5, 7 through 15. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us this morning, again, we welcome you. You're an honored guest to us, and we have been encouraged by you being here, and we hope that we can encourage you as you are here today also. We hope that you'll come back every opportunity that you have. We want to give the parents and our youth the reminder that 415 today will be the last of our foundation sessions for our high school group. And Roy Sharp will be coming from West Tennessee, and he closed out foundations last year and did a spectacular job. And so we wanted to bring him back again. And so be sure if you have been participating that, or even if you haven't, but yet you'd like to come to the last one, it'd be a tremendous blessing for you. Uh, be sure and be a part of that 415 for the high school group. Also, this coming Saturday will be, if it was like last year, it will be the highlight of the year for us as a congregation to come together throughout the day and to pray together. Uh, we will be praying from 6 o'clock in the morning till after 10 at night. And this will be the beginning of 50 days of emphasis upon prayer. Now let's make it real clear. We want to be a praying people at all times. We want to pray without ceasing. But it is wonderful to be among a congregation of people that love to pray and believe that prayer puts us in contact with the awesome and powerful God. And so if you are running around the neighborhood on Saturday at any given time, this is not anything that you dress up for. Come as you are on top of the hour. Two prayers will be led each hour. Sometimes it's 15 or 20 minutes. Sometimes it's 30 or 40 minutes. But on the top of each hour, prayers will be led. Prayers will be led in thanksgiving for the way God has blessed us. Prayers will be made in anticipation and request of things that we hope God will do in our lives and lives church in 2006. Prayers of praise and the petitions for others will be prayed. Also, the next day, we will be passing out prayer cards to those that want to participate in the 50 days of prayer. There will be 10 items listed on each prayer card. You will be asked to pray that card morning, noon, and night three times a day. At the end of that week, you'll bring that card back, you'll put it in a box, and you'll take a different color card. As long as you take a different color card for the seven weeks, you will have a different card each time. This is a wonderful blessing you're about to hear about. There are pink forms such as this in the foyer. If you have not yet filled out things that you would like for the congregation to be praying for you individually or for your family or concerns that you have uh, in your life or in lives of those that you love, be sure that you complete one of these forms today. 
please get this back to us by tonight. There are drop boxes on each end of the foyer. And just a heads up for what it's worth, department. Last year, so many participated in the prayer cards. And after the fact of receiving the prayer cards and praying other people's requests, they then said, I wish I would have put in more specific requests. I wish I would have put in many more requests. And we'll make future cards. It's not like this is the last. Uh, so if you're one of those and you go that route later on in the midway, we'll make future cards and be glad to include your request. But if you can, go ahead and fill those out now. Make sure that you get those in today. Beth Conklin wrote a book. She's an anthropologist or an associate professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University. She wrote a book entitled Consuming Grief. The book may not be about what you think it's about. You see, it touches on one of the taboos of our modern day society, and that is cannibalism. Usually when we think of cannibalism, we think of uh, aggressive and barbaric and degrading behavior. We think of native tribes that participated in something that we can't even fathom how anyone could do that. She went to the Wari tribe, which was natives of the rainforest, the Amazon rainforest, and she lived with them for 19 months. And then she did further research for several more months and then went back on a few annual visits to finally put together this book. You see, what intrigued her so much was that they participated in cannibalisms on twofold. One, it was in warfare. During warfare, they believed that in eating their enemies, that they were showing their great disdain for them and their anger for them. But the second was surprising to me and probably to you also. The second form of cannibalism in which they practiced was a funeral ritual. It's where the community came together and they would eat the one that they loved in order to share in a social and a spiritual event together. And hence the book, Consuming Grief. I would that practice was practiced as late as 1960. None of us are probably ready to accept that. To not even accept it in the sense of saying, well, it's fine for them. We would probably join with the missionaries and the government officials that went over there and put a stop to it and said, this isn't going to happen anywhere in the world. But does it still happen? Maybe not as much in the funeral realm, but does it happen in the realm of enemies? We just had a text so capably read for us where the last warning in that text was, beware lest you are consumed by one another. Paul is bringing out one of the strongest phrases that he could bring out to say, look what you can do to one another. Now before that, he looked from a positive aspect. Good that you can do for one another. But then he closes with that warning to say, but be careful. You can literally become a spiritual cannibal. Let's see where all this came from in this text. If you will, look back with me, and let's go back to a verse that precedes the text this morning, Galatians, the fifth chapter and verse four, as Paul is saying to them, look at the condition that they are presently in. In verse four, he says, you have become estranged from Christ. You are who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. 
Notice here in this verse, he's speaking to those who are tempted to be justified by the law instead of finding their relationship and their justification through Christ. And so he's looking at this present condition of those individuals and he has two things to say to them. He says, number one, you're estranged from Christ. In other words, you've been severed in your relationship with Christ. That leaves you at this point in your life. You have fallen from grace. Grace is the only hope that we have. Grace is found only through Jesus Christ. You've been severed from grace. And the only place in which you had hope, now you have fallen from it. Now, some would say that you can't fall from grace today. That's a very popular saying in the religious world today. The only time that the scripture speaks of falling from grace, it says, you have fallen from grace. I need to note that. When individuals say to me, it's impossible to fall from grace, they're taking a phrase that has been said one time in the scriptures to say they did it, and people today say you can't. We need to know our scriptures. We need to be able to recognize false teaching whenever it's said to us. I think you're with me. I'll side with God on this one. I'm not going to argue with God. If God says they have fallen from grace, I'm not going to be the one to stand up and say, no, that's impossible to fall from grace. Paul said they've done it. They've severed their relationship with Christ. They had that relationship. They severed it. They were saved by the grace of God, but now they're no longer saved by the grace of God. They have fallen from the grace of God. But you see, it wasn't always that way. That's the present condition for those that are trying to find their justification through the law. But let's look at their past condition for just a moment. Let's back up now and read verse 7 and read verse 13. Verse 7 and verse 13. Notice he says in 7, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? But notice that first sentence, you ran well. Now look at 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Now let's pause just right there. We'll look at the rest of the verse later. But now let's think about these two things. He says, number one, you've been called to liberty. That liberty is found in Christ. That liberty is freedom. Many of you have been baptized into Christ and you were very serious and submissive in that obedience. And you remember coming out of that water and you knew that you had repented of sins. You knew that you were lost. You knew that you wanted to be saved. And when you came out of that water, you were so thankful. I have found my liberty in Christ. You were able to pillow your head that night knowing that you were no longer in the stocks and the bonds of sin. But you had been delivered from that bondage. Now you have liberty. Notice it's not that you have license to do anything you want, but you have liberty. You've been free from, Jesus, from the sin that only Jesus Christ can deliver us from. And so he's looking at their past now. Keep in mind, here's the ones that have been severed from Christ. They've fallen from grace. And he's saying, look, remember what you had. Remember how you had the liberty of Christ. And then he even gives a statement about their life that they lived. He ran well. Today, we'll sometimes say, you know, they seem to be doing so well. I wonder what happened. That's what Paul's saying. I remember your conversion. I remember your Christian life. You seem to be running so well. What has happened? Well, what's happened are the recent instructors that have come into their lives and they've decided to be affected by these false teachers. Look with me, if you will, at this next slide. And on this next slide, we have a reference of verses. So if you have your Bible open, you'll want to look at what these recent instructors have done. We're going to pick up in verse 7 and read that again. And the first thing that he sees that these instructors have done is that they've hindered them. Notice again in verse 7, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Also, they were persuasive. Look in verse 8. This persuasion 
does not come from him who calls you. Look at verse 9. We see that's like a bad leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now look in verse 10 and we see how they're creating trouble in their lives. These false teachers are creating trouble in their lives. He says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord. He says, that's where we find our confidence. We find our confidence in the Lord. But that you will have no other mind. In other words, he wants to have the one mind of Christ. But he, talking about the false teachers, who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Now, another verse about this trouble that's being caused. Let's read verse 12. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off or could be translated mutilate themselves. Now, let's just go back over this and think about this for a moment. What have these false teachers done? Well, you remember at one time they were saved. At one time they were running well. But now... They were fallen from grace. They were severed from Christ. What's that stumbling stone that has created that change in their spiritual life? He says, I tell you what it was. There were individuals that came in that hindered you from obeying the truth. I need to think about anything, anybody, any teaching, any practice in my life that is hindering me from growing to what I ought to be in my relationship with God. And I need to figure out how to get rid of that in my life. Here. He looks at their condition and he says, there's someone hindering you from speaking the truth, from practicing the truth, from obeying the truth. But then notice he says that persuasion, that ready obedience, that persuasion is not from Christ. Now this is big. What was the persuasion? Why was it so persuasive? Think about how they could turn back to the old scripture and they could say, look, Father Abraham had the sign of the covenant of circumcision. Moses practiced the Passover. Your forefathers kept these festival dates. Think how persuasive that was. Don't you want to be like Father Abraham? Don't you want to be like the great lawgiver Moses? But that persuasion, he says, is not of Christ. That was the whole problem. What they were being convinced to do was not under Christ's covenant. Even though it would have been a very persuasive argument. Because of the setting of this text, this would be a wonderful time for us to consider something that oftentimes brings very sincere questions into our midst, especially in the weeks to come. We go into our workplaces and we go into break rooms or offices or even into our schools and we hear people visit and they say, I can't believe that you're a religious person and your church doesn't celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday. How can you people think that that is what God would ever want you to do is to leave Christ out of Christmas? How can you think that we're ever going to reach the world if you take Christ out of Christmas? A world that has become so materialistic. And finally, we have the opportunity as as a religious body to stand up and to celebrate this religious holiday. Why in the world would we not take advantage of that? And why wouldn't we do the same thing at Easter? A time that we can say to the world, He is risen, the tomb was found empty. 
Why are you not practicing that? That's a good question. Very similar to the question that Paul was dealing with here. Circumcision was an act under the old law. It was a religious event. It was a sign of a relationship with God. And Paul comes in and he says, if you bind that, you no longer have Christ and you've fallen from grace. Why? Paul, why? It's just circumcision. It's just Abraham's sign of the covenant that God gave to him. You're going to tell me you're going to fall from grace by binding something that was given to Abraham? He says, absolutely. Why? Because that persuasion is not of Christ. Find the word Christmas in the New Covenant. Find the date that Christ was born in the New Covenant. Find the command where the Lord says, this is a religious holiday in the New Covenant. Find the way that the Lord wants us to celebrate this. Because if it is a holiday and a religious holiday, the Lord would tell us how He wants us to celebrate His religious holiday. None of it's there, is it? Because none of it is of the persuasion of Christ. That's why we can't bind it upon one another to say, well, my family's more religious because we celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday. You must be more heathen since you don't. We can't do that. Because it's not a persuasion of Christ. Everything in our life, it doesn't matter how persuasive the argument, we must be willing to step back and say, wait a minute, you know that sounds great on the surface, but you're going to have to let me go and study through my new covenant. I'm going to study through the New Testament, and I'm going to see what Jesus has to say on this. And if Jesus speaks on it, not only will I practice it, but I will teach it that it's what we ought to do. But if it's not a part of the law of Christ, and we begin teaching it as if it is what we ought to do, we then have fallen from grace. And we've severed our relationship with Christ, according to Paul. Notice also as we look here in Galatians, the fifth chapter, he says a little leaven that leavened the whole lump. The idea that just a few false teachers can affect an entire church as a reality that goes back a few thousand years to when the church began. How serious we must be about making sure that no one hinders us from obeying the truth and that in everything we go back and say, is this persuasion of Christ? Because what they were doing was they were allowing this little bit of leaven to leaven the whole lump and the result was trouble. Literally means to agitate. Create trouble. Was it trouble in their own lives and a relationship with God? I would suppose so. But it was probably trouble also among their relationship with each other. That's probably why we have been led to the following verses of this text today, where he then starts talking about how are you going to treat each other? Now, by the way, if you think Paul's not serious about this, he literally says, I wish those false teachers that are troubling you, I wish they'd mutilate themselves. Now, one way To understand that passage is to say, I wish they'd cut themselves off from you. In other words, right now, they're involved in your life and they're affecting you and they're hindering you. I wish they'd cut themselves off. That's probably not the translation here. 
The translation is probably mutilation. In other words, I wish they castrate themselves so that they could no longer reproduce this false teaching. Strong, strong language that Paul uses against these individuals. Where does that leave us? That leaves Paul challenging them. Look at what is beautiful. The liberty that is found in Christ Jesus. Read this with me as, let's read verse 13 as we read about the liberty that is found in Christ Jesus. In, in the fifth chapter in verse 1, he referred to this as he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So you see, there's the warning. They had it right. The fear was they were going to get it wrong this time. Where, what should they do? Stand fast in that liberty. Look at verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So we have liberty, and then he kind of pauses in the middle of that to say, let me give you something that's kind of negative that we need to think about. Sometimes people use liberty as license. Now I have the license to do whatever I want. He says, no, liberty in Christ doesn't mean that you have no law. Liberty in Christ doesn't mean that you can go out and sin so that grace may abound. God forbid. That's Romans the sixth chapter, verse one and two. Liberty instead is being free from the bondage of sin that's found only in Jesus Christ now to serve the law of Christ, Galatians six and verse two. And so now he begins telling us, what is this relationship? Let's look at this next slide. And you're going to see there that Galatians 5 and 13 is on that next slide. I want you to see that last phrase again as we tie it with 14 and 15. That last phrase in 13 was, through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's the warning. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And so here the powerful teaching that he shows us as we go to this next slide. Notice how it's laid out on this slide that we can, in Christ's liberty, it produces a life of loving and serving one another. And the result of that is fulfilling the law of Christ, as we saw there. But notice, if we have misused liberty, try to treat liberty like a license to do whatever we want. Instead, this is the fact. We begin to bite and devour one another, and the result is we literally consume one another. Now, I want to show you something that takes place in the text. I've struggled with this from Thursday night. I haven't figured it out, logically. But I can tell you it's Scripture. The first part of the text we studied today is dealing with how we approach our relationship with God and whether or not we're going to remain with Christ and be faithful to Him. When they ceased being faithful to Christ, they began to have troubles with each other. That's what we see here. Notice, He didn't say, false teachers have come in and they have taught you how to hate each other. False teachers have come in and they've taught you how to backbite at each other and gossip about each other. He didn't say that. The whole theme of Galatians is false teachers have come in and they're trying to get you to mix parts of the old law with parts of the new law. Somebody say, well, maybe the only thing they got wrong was some of the things pertaining to things of the old law and new law. No, the result of false teaching is going to not only affect our relationship with God, it's going to affect our relationship with each other. 
And so it is of a, a striking interest. As we read through here, you kind of scratch your head and say, how did we start talking about each other? Where did that come from? It comes from the second greatest command. If we're going to obey Christ, you remember the first greatest command, love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second, it's likened to it, love thy neighbor as thyself. And so in this, we serve one another. I want to show you a few scriptures. And in these scriptures, I'm only going to have time to mention to you what they are about as we close this lesson. But I hope you can listen intently and grasp this important part of how the Lord wants us to, through love, serve one another. Now let's get that in our mind as we look at this next slide. Through love, serve one another. The motive is through love. The action is to do what? Serve one another. So anytime you and I are doing something for each other, the motive ought to be love. And the result is going to be that we fulfill the law of Christ. But when we begin in our life to do things without love, the motive, the action will eventually become that we bite and devour one another. And then the result of that is that we consume one another. In Luke, the 22nd chapter, in verse 24 and following, this is the night that Jesus is going to institute the Passover. He's going to practice the Passover and institute the Lord's Supper. And this night, several things take place. If you'll notice as you read through the Gospels, these things are not in chronological order and no one Gospel records everything. And so piecing it together, it becomes even more powerful. If you can imagine these men sitting around the table and of all the things they could have discussed, here are the twelve. Here are the ones that you would think would be the most spiritual-minded individuals on the earth because after all, they've been walking with Jesus shoulder to shoulder, day in and day out for a few years now. And can you imagine this? Please, just imagine this. You're watching them sit around the table. What's the conversation going to be? Notice as we read there in 24, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. In the following verses, he says, you're treating this leadership as the heathens treat it. The heathens, they sit in the office and they get everybody to serve them. And then when everybody serves them, they say, I'm the benefactor. Benefactor means you're doing good for others. Jesus was the first one that introduced servant leadership. When we talk about elders serving in office, scripturally, we're talking about Jesus' principle where he says, those that are greatest among you shall become the servant. Those that are the greatest shall become the least. He that exalts himself shall be humbled. He that humbles himself shall be exalted. This style of leadership wasn't known. It wasn't accepted. This was a time where classes were very readily acceptable, where people counted other people as, as different levels of people. And if you were of lower level, you deserved to give me the sidewalk when we were walking down the street. When we were in public, you were the ones that did things for me because I'm a higher class than you. And Jesus now is taking this and he's listening to them as they think we're going to be placed in the kingdom of Christ. We're going to have this high position. And they begin arguing, who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom? And it's there if we go over to John the 13th chapter. 
that Jesus. Turn with me, if you will, to John the 13th chapter. I want you to notice verse 4 and 5. He rose from the supper, and He laid aside His garments, and He took a towel, and He girded Himself, and after that, He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with a towel with which He was girded. I want you to notice here, I don't want to put more into this text than what the Lord puts into this text, but I want to make sure that we understand what the Lord put in this text. Jesus did not come to this earth to act like a servant. I need to hear that. I need to understand that. Jesus came to this earth to be a servant. Philippians 2 said He came in the form of a bondservant. In other words, He took upon Himself the life of a bondservant. Here's proof of it. They just argued about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus slips over to the side and He undresses Himself. And here is the garment of what would be the lowest servant in the home. We would think about it as a big towel that would be wrapped and knotted. He takes off His clothes. He's just presided at the Passover, head of the table. And now He puts on His servant's garb. It's knotted And he goes to them with his basin of water and he washes dusty, dirty feet. But I want you to note this. He didn't do it at arm's length and keep them away, shine them with a towel out here. What did he wipe them with? What does the verse say he wiped them with? He wiped them with the towel that he was wearing. Imagine those feet coming up on his leg. And imagine him washing them. And imagine him drying them. Why? Because he was a servant. He was the greatest among them. He was the greatest that ever walked the face of this earth. But he could bring dirty feet right into his bosom. And he could wash them. And he would get up from there to the leaders of the church that's going to take place in just a few weeks. About seven or eight weeks, they are going to be the leaders of the church. And he's trying to show them, we're not doing religion the way the world about us has done religion. You're going to be the leaders and you're going to serve the lowest. And you're going to do it because you believe that they're greater than you. When we look at 1 Corinthians the 13th chapter and the definition of love, And we see that those first three verses tell us over and over, if we do these things without love, it is nothing. And we realize that if we serve without love, it's nothing. Then we begin to realize what Paul was trying to say to those of Galatia. Get away from the false teachers. Turn back to Christ and Christ only. Love one another. And through that love, serve each other. Let's start at the top and work our way down to all of us. If an elder ever stops loving the person, loving the people that surrounds him, he can no longer be an effective leader. If a deacon ever loses sight of the people and starts to only see the job, he cannot be an effective leader. If you and I start looking at things we have to do, instead of seeing opportunities to serve one another because we love each other, we will make our life, that is the Christian life, miserable for ourselves. And so Paul gives a beautiful lesson. 
a lesson that says just love each other. And through that love, serve each other. But beware. It's so easy to start backbiting. And it's so easy to start doing things that are against the other. And the next thing you know, you're consuming one another. Beth Conklin said, and this is a quote at the end of her article. She says, There is a certain wisdom in the worry's practice of acknowledging the deep impact of death and survivor's need for social and spiritual support. You see, after several years of studying this form of cannibalism, she says, I now understand they practice this to support each other and what they understood their relationship to God to be. Do you realize that Jesus Christ began with those two things? He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the spiritual. And that spiritual affects everything else. As he says, the second is likened to it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. This morning, please believe this. It's possible for me to be a spiritual cannibal. When I backbite and I gossip, when I do things that discourages and takes the spiritual legs out of someone else, I have become of the worst form of cannibalism that has ever been discovered in this earth. And Paul's plea is, let's fulfill the second commandment. Through love, serve one another. This morning, are you a child of God? Christ wants to give you liberty. He wants to give you grace. He wants to save you. You can be free from the bondage of sin. If you're a believer that's willing to repent and confess before man, won't you be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of those sins? This morning, you won't regret the tremendous freedom that we find in Christ. But along with that freedom, we have responsibility. And this morning, you evaluate that responsibility and you realize that you've dealt with it as a license and now you found yourself back in bondage again. Thank God that He's gracious. We can confess our faults one to another and pray one for another. James, the fifth chapter, verse 16. And if you need that this morning, we'd be honored to do so. Let's make sure that we leave here today right with our God, but also making a deep vow to ourself and to our God that will be known by all around us, I'll never, never cannibalize my brothers and sisters in Christ. If we can help you in any way, it comes we stand as we sing.